Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? They stumbled into leads. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? You've been threatened if you tell the truth. Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew. Woodward! Bernstein! Get in here! At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs. You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives. Shamal people, and welcome to our 96th episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time, reviewing the films that earned their gold statue, or standard, if you will. I am one of your hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the professional nerd herself, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you today? Uh, I am... I don't, yeah, yeah, you got me all worked up before we even started recording. So <laughs> I'm going to try to watch my language, but uh, I'm sorry, folks. But considering one of the terminologies used in this contains the F word, uh, it's just going to be no holes barred here, I think. <laughs> we'll make this a not safe for work episode, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we could definitely do that. And of course, on the other, the Ghostwood girl, Zan Sprouse. And Zan, how is life treating you? Um, today's okay. Uh, I spent Tuesday in the ER, but uh, today is one of the best days of the year because it is half off Valentine's Day candy day. So I went and I, I got myself a little welcome home from the ER treats today. <laughs> nice. So, good, it's a good day. It's a good day. Definitely, I'm definitely glad you got to treat yourself indeed. And uh, I got Rachel, cheese and vodka for Valentine's Day. Hell yeah, you did. I love that. That's a great combo. It's a great combo for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and folks, Rachel, of course, today is particularly riled up because today we are reviewing, as we wait for the next, next best picture to reveal itself, today we are reviewing All the President's Men. This was directed by Alan J. Pakula. It was based on the book by the same name by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. The screenplay was by William Goldman, while the score was by David Shire. An estimate to print today's money, this movie cost $45 million to make and made roughly $374 million at the box office. It debuted in New York and Los Angeles on April the 7th of 1976 and had its wide release on April the 9th of 1976 and has a runtime of roughly two hours and 18 minutes. So, uh, Zan, starting with you, what did you make of All the President's Men? I love All the President's Men. I think this is a fantastic movie. What I love about it is that no matter how many times I see it, 
And even the first time I saw it, it was fascinating to me that it did this. I am riveted to this story. Absolutely riveted to the tension, to the unfolding, the pacing. And I know exactly what's going to happen. This is something that you learn in history class. This is not a bit of history that you didn't hear about. And I, I'm trying to think of something even... It's not like suppressed history that, you know, something like, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon was suppressed and now it's coming out in a movie and you're like, oh my God, you know, you're, you know, we're finally learning about this. You know, how we all, how so many people learned about the Tulsa massacre after watching the Watchmen TV show. And it wasn't something like that. This was huge. This was a huge thing. And growing up with, you know, fairly left-leaning parents and going to a fairly left-leaning school you know my entire life was just filled with nixon hate and so this is not something you got away from you you know you knew this story and you knew what happened to the players involved but i'm still on the edge of my seat and i'm thinking like oh are these guys gonna get their story i'm like no they're woodward and bernstein you know these people and the the, the way that this movie unfolds is so well done and so well paced and gives you such a good idea of how convoluted this is. This is very convoluted, but it barely skims the fat of this whole story. And you just realize that these people were shit heels, like on a, in a lot of ways and on a lot of levels. You know, you have that, you know, you have that scene where Segretti's like, I was a damn good lawyer and I'm probably going to go to jail. Yeah, because you're a shit heel. <laughs> and just this whole idea of, you know, that I would really love it if something like this were happen would were to happen right now. These this reminder of politicians are people too, and they are not above it. And they should not be held above it. And this started to happen in the 1960s when we started to learn about the affairs of JFK. And then, you know, we get Nixon being brought down, and then we just get a little bit more involved politically in what we should be more than we are. But we started getting more politically involved in what these politicians are doing. And you can't just you can't just trust people on the face of it anymore. And this really very much changed that mentality in this country as well as it should have, because <clears throat> we have too many people right now that are willing to trust someone simply because they said um, you're better than brown people and you deserve more money, even if they're complete and total morons and criminals, shitheel criminals. And that's what these guys were. They were shitheel criminals, uh, funneling money where it shouldn't belong, putting, you know, making scapegoats of people. And it's it's so infuriating. And you remind you're reminded like, oh, my God, how does this? Ugh, this is so terrible. But it's amazing because you are so incredibly riveted to it. And you know exactly what's going to happen. This is this. This is the story of Watergate. We all know this story. But, you know, the way that, you know, Goldman script and Alan J. Pakula's directing and these really fantastic performances, you know, there's not, you know, there's not a stinker in the bunch of these, of these performances. I'm always, I, I don't want to, far be it for me to say a lot of nice things about Stephen Collins these days, but he's good in this movie. I have to give it to him. Um, and even, you know, even people that don't get much screen time, you're like, good job, Meredith Baxter. Nice work. You know, love Meredith Baxter. I grew up on Family Ties. So um, everybody just does such an amazing job. And this is a tough year, Oscars wise, because I think everybody does so well. But then you have like, it's up against network. <laughs> so you have these real tour de force performance movies 
that are just absolutely stellar. And when you think about how this was like barely four years after this happened, that this movie was made and how fresh this was in everybody's mind at the time. And it's still so incredibly relevant right now. And I remember watching this thinking to myself, there was something really special about a time when a printed word was essentially etching something in stone. And depending on the paper that it was in, if it gets printed in the paper, that's just how it is. That's, you know, because you had people like these reporters and like these editors saying, no, this is too thin. We don't have the right source. Let's see if we can get this. Let's keep everybody confidential, but make sure we're getting what we need. These checks and balances of this journalism. And then once it finally gets in the paper, it's a huge thing. Like, because not only, not only is it written and not only do you know that it has been vetted, but there was a time when everyone read that shit. Like everybody in the morning on their commuter when they were having their morning coffee was reading the paper. And there was something special about, even when you think about something like um, um, Shawshank Redemption, you know, it, it, it's in the paper and then everybody's reading their paper and then here, here we hear sirens because that meant something because there was a time when we had a communal experience with learning new information and <clears throat> simply because there weren't a lot of outlets. Now, there's a wonderful thing about the fact that there are a lot of outlets right now. That means nothing gets suppressed. We can always find news on something somewhere. You can always find a different opinion on something. You know, if you feel like something's being spun one way, you can find another way or you can find something more neutral. And there's a lot of places for anybody to, to, to find it. Like, for example, if we were to have a disaster like the Challenger today, um, somebody would get it pinged on their phone or somebody would have someone text them about it or somebody would have a news update from CNN while another person would see it from Apple News and maybe somebody might be watching TV in the dentist's office or something. But back then, you know, you would have something like you if you weren't near a TV, you'd call someone and be like, hey, can you turn on the TV and tell me what's going on? So there was something special about having a source that you knew was right. And this movie does tell you that there were people out there that were trying to make sure that they said the right thing. Now, am I a huge fan of Bob Woodward? Not really. Um, and I have my issues with him. He's a little sensationalist. But, you know, am I a fan of Ben Bradley? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and is it because of this movie? A lot of it. <laughs> But there's just something so interesting about that, about that time period where if it got written down by the right person, it could bring down a government. And I'm not saying we need to go back to that. I'm saying that we need to, as a, you know, as a species, we need to be decent, trustworthy people. And I know that, that ain't going to happen. But um, yeah, this this movie is really, really fantastic. And I think the main thing about it is the, is its pacing. Because it unfolds at, I think, perfect timing. It never keeps you waiting. It's always giving, even if they're not publishing the story, it's always giving you something. And um, and like I said, it keeps you glued to the edge of your seat when you know exactly what's going to happen. And I think that is incredibly, incredibly special. Um, and it's things that aren't always easy to do. You know, it, it it's something that I think James Cameron could have done with titanic but didn't it's like we all know what happened to the titanic um but he had to add a a bad romance and a jewel heist 
even though, you know, to keep us riveted to something that we already would have been riveted to. I mean, you know, uh, we've all, we were riveted to A Night to Remember. We were riveted to that Titanic miniseries. I mean, the Titanic is fascinating. You don't need this. And so not everybody can do this. Not everybody can take a story that everybody's heard before and turn it into, you know, a riveting, a riveting nail biter of a story. And this one does it. And there's something really, really special about that. I, I 100% agree. And actually, before I pass this over to Rachel, uh, I, you know, you mentioned Zan how historically what what waves that just the the event of Watergate self made. Heck, if something like this causes Captain America to lose faith in in the American government and you know lose the shield and become nomad, you know that something major has happened. Because if you're Marvel, if you can Cubs disenfranchise up, Cappy. Come on, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, in fact, I remember reading that issue of Marvel Comics where literally Cap finds out about this and he's like, I've lost faith in this country and I'm going to become nomads. So I'm like, wow, yeah, if even Marvel did that, you know something big happened. So, Rachel, what did you make of this one? I love this movie because of how good it is. I hate the way it makes me feel because watching this play out and I read the book that this is based on recently, which is humongous. because it covers everything up until um, Nixon's State of the Union address, um, the the right before he the year that he ends up resigning, which in his State of the Union he's like, "I'm not going anywhere." <laughs> like, well, that's a lie. Uh, you just don't know it yet. So, uh, like, the book is huge. It gets into way a lot more detail, and it's there's a lot of names out there that don't even get mentioned in this but it makes you realize just how extensive and convoluted and messy this whole thing was and the fact that these two guys who really kind of stumbled upon you know the story because it originally nobody thought it was that big of a deal is uh but once they started digging really getting into the weeds the fact that i mean it's these two guys essentially brought down the president of the united states at all and a chunk of the intelligence community as well along with a whole bunch of other you know high-ranking washington insiders by just being like you know a dog that's given a toy and you're trying to take it from him and they're just like you know they're not gonna let go um, and it's just the sheer tenacity of Willie, you know, uh, you know, making phone calls at all times of day. It doesn't matter if they're waking somebody up. She'll going and showing up uninvited on people's doors. Uh, you know, meeting informants in <laughs> in parking garages at all hours of the night. Uh, you know, the I I hate the idea of getting on the phone to like you know, make it like a dentist appointment. And these guys are just constantly on the phone. <laughs> like my millennial heart can't take it. Uh, <laughs> but um, just uh, like, I, I'm just so amazed at what they were able to accomplish, especially in an era where they, they really had to rely on phone calls and talking to people face to face, you didn't have email. I mean, you had a fax machine, <laughs> but it's like the you couldn't just like you know send an email or 
DM somebody or pull them up on FaceTime and talk to some like the the it's not instantaneous access to information like what we have now. And you know, that's partially why this took so long, but you know, also just you know how deep and how thick the, the weeds in this are. Um, you know, I'm just I'm so impressed, but at the same time, it's like flashbacks to the last oh, almost decade of what we've gone through in politics. Um, it's like, have we learned nothing? <laughs> it's again, it's one of those where it's like we've learned nothing <laughs> from from this. The the it's the you know they you know we'll talk about the ending but it's like when this you know when once nixon resigned people are all like great moving on and they thought that was it and it's like no the underlying issues are still there and they're still there now in u.s politics and government and it's like you know the the it really you know, unfortunately, the the establishment is built upon establishment, which is built upon years of just doing the same thing. And, you know, I don't know how it could be done, but it's like the whole thing just needs to be taken down at the knees, at the at its foundation. And uh, unfortunately, it, uh, now it's going to it's going to take more than two journalists to uh to shake up the status quo and and do anything no but that's that's not anything against this movie that's just you know <laughs> that's the opinion of somebody who is is old enough uh to be aware of what we have gone through in the last you know 10 ish years and it's like i kind of want to throw up a little <laughs> or scream or something <laughs> It is incredibly infuriating. I would agree. And sometimes I can just have to, you know, just sort of, uh, uh, you know, watch something else or, or kind of occupy my mind with something, you know, less like that, you know, like sports, for example, because I'm like, yeah, this is the, the world outside is just so horrible and the politics just just awful. When it comes to, to this movie, I will have to recite a mea culpa here because I will admit the last time I watched this, which was when we reviewed Rocky, as this was, of course, one of the Best Picture nominees that year, I found it incredibly boring and long-winded without much happening on screen other than people talking, typing, and making phone calls. But this time around, I was thoroughly impressed with what I saw, possibly because, as I mentioned to you, to both Rachel and Zanoff Air, I got to sit with this movie and really give it the attention it deserved. And I will say, yeah, that what Pakula and his team did with this is absolutely fantastic. And I would not be surprised if this movie influenced other films of its ilk, which I enjoy, like Spotlight or Good Night and Good Luck or even Zodiac and others for that style in which investigative journalism is portrayed and how almost documentary style this movie is done in places. I mean, the movie, of course, is part of the so-called Paranoia trilogy with alongside Clute and the Parallax view, and understandably so, as granted all three tell very different stories but in all of them, one of the key elements is, of course, the mounting tension and paranoia, which reaches, that, reaches its apex as the story unfolds and how it takes hold of our characters as they uncover more and more of, the, of their story. And in similar fashion to the other investigative movies, which I mentioned previously, we have, as I agree with both, we have some great performances 
everything feels incredibly real and not overly romanticized or even emotional. And a lot of that paranoia and lack of trust in the establishment is something which is sadly felt today as well, if not more so, which adds, I think, also to how relevant this film continues to be. So once again, kudos to, to Pakula and his crew. Fabulous, fabulous movie. So let's get to our characters on the board, starting with our dynamic duo of investigative journalists. We have, of course, Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein and Robert Redford as Bob Woodward. So, Rachel, what did you make of these two? Uh, I don't know so much about Bernstein. Um, from what I understand when it came to um, writing this script and you know, this entire movie coming, coming together, Bob was way more cooperative than than carl was um and I, I think maybe that's just a personality i mean bob is even now is still active he's out there uh you know meeting with with people and uh you know meeting with uh and writing books um and uh you know being still very active um so um yeah, you know, Robert Redford, he bought the rights to this almost immediately after the book came out um, and, you know, started shopping around <laughs> to see about getting it made. And um, he didn't necessarily want to play Bob, uh, but, um, you know, once it, once it was kind of decided that he would, um, that he wanted to make sure he had someone just as... Um, on the same level of him as far as you know acting prowess and recognition and that's why Dustin Hoffman was ultimately you know hired to play Bernstein um you know, like I said this 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 film only covers like the first seven months of their investigation from the time of the break-in to you know Nixon being reelected um and these two guys who, were brought together um, because of Ben Bradley. It was also ben, ben Bradley who decided that these two guys were going to work together. And it took them a while to to find, uh, you know, a, a smooth, a, you know, a smoothish working relationship. They butted heads for quite a while um, when they first started. But once they figured out, uh, you know, who was good with what, good with what. Um, you know, one guy would be better at, at uh, you know, taking notes that were legible uh, than the other. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, they had different contacts, you know, sources that they could go to. They made sure to keep the. They tried to keep those things separate. Anything that they brought in, as like as far as contacts and stuff, they kept those separate so that they could both could have plausible deniability of knowing each other's sources because that's like. When it comes to journalism, keeping your sources secret is like the top thing. Um, so, uh, you know, they would, uh, you know, contact their sources. Uh, but then if some, you know, if a name came up in the process of that, then it was equal game for either of them to, to contact. And that's when they would tag team and do things like, uh, you know, one person be on the phone, another person's listed again. Uh, making sure when they went to houses that uh, they had both of them, because then it's not a he said, the source said. If you have a second set of ears that hears the same thing, yeah, that makes it 
easier to confirm, you know, what somebody says. Um, but then they also, you know, would uh, have their they have their tactics, like uh, saying, uh, you know, we already know who that is, <laughs> and see if you know person, you know, did, you know, it's like no, that's wrong, or doesn't, uh, or to, like uh, when Carl shows up uh, to the one lady's house, and it turns out he's looking for her sister. And he's like, you know, can I have a cigarette? And then the sister, you know, the, the sister originally answers the door. He's like, you want some coffee? He totally did that. He totally used that as an invitation to come in, sit down, you know, smoke some cigarettes. Because Carl was a, a chim you know, human chimney. He smoked, like, he had cigarette ash on him, like, all of the time. That line when they're in the elevator where Bob is like, is there anywhere you won't smoke? That is totally true. Uh, and, but he used that to his advantage. You know, it's like, oh, look, my coffee's gotten cold. And of course, you know, being the polite hostess, you know, the sister would be like, oh, let me refresh your cup. And he's like, well, I'm here. Um, so, uh, you know, these guys were just so good about, you know, this is the sign of, of, of a good, not just a reporter, but an investigative reporter, because that's the thing. Journalism isn't always necessarily investigative. You know, not everything is like a conspiracy where you really need to dig into it. And that's fine. You know, some people, they want to just read the sports section uh, and hear about what's going on with the NHL or something, you know, some coaches and people that just got fired from certain teams <laughs> recently so um but when it comes to investigative journalism you have to be you have to be able to look at the information presented to you but you also have to be able to read between the lines and there are several times this uh with both of them where they will be talking to a source and they realize that it's what they didn't say says a lot or the way they say something you know confirms or denies something you know when they go to sloan's house after you know like the second time after sloan's wife has had their had their baby and they're all like uh you know if we wrote a story saying this would we be in trouble you know <laughs> They find lots of ways so that, uh, you know, and you hear them like on their, you know, it's conversations on the phone. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, you hear them repeating things like the full names of people, um, or the full names of departments or something. And that's because they have to make sure that the person they're having a conversation can't say, well, I assume they were talking about X. You can't have any assumptions. And that's a lot of places where they bump heads with each other and with Bradley and some of the other, other people is, you know, especially Carl, you know, where he's all like, um, like when they're riding around in the car a couple of times and he's trying to, you know, trying to justify to Woodward that it's like what the, you know, the story we have it and Woodward's like, well, you know, you're working on assumptions or, you know, logic says, and it's like, well, not everybody's going to think that way. Um, so you have to be, you know, even when they're talking to the the one guy at the FBI and the guy says John for somebody's first name and they have to call him back because they're like, did you mean 
this person and then he's like yeah 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 sorry um and uh you know when when woodward calls up you know i forget who it is to to ask about what was somebody's like job description and the person he talks to immediately is like well they're not involved in watergate and then he's telling you know bradley later is like i never asked about watergate they brought it up <laughs> you know and it's like you had the, the these guys are just so good about the, analyzing just everything instead of just taking everything at face value and that is something that we seriously as human beings desperately need to learn how to do <laughs> doesn't mean you got to be paranoid about everything i'll go eventually you know gets to the point with deep throat that you know they you know, just because you're paranoid paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you um in this case they're right but um you know there's so much for as long as humans have been communicating with each other there are people that will be very careful about not just what they say but how it's said how things are worded inflection that you know there's something that doesn't come up in the movie that comes in the book several times is when they would um uh either contact the white house communications office or the white house would be having like their daily press briefing and they would say things no one current you know no one employed at the at the white house at this time was involved and it's like you know your average person would be like well they said nobody employed at the white house did you know was involved so you know it must be it's like no at this time why say those specific words uh you know so it's just like uh this is definitely like you were saying nick it's a movie that you really kind of need to sit with and pay attention to um because the communications between these two guys and the individuals that they talk to whether it's you know deep throat or whoever every single line in this movie that has you know anything to do with um yeah the actual facts of the watergate scandal and everything involving it is pulled from their actual investigation uh bradley realized that they really needed to be involved with this to make sure that it's portrayed as accurately as possible and they made sure to you know as they're writing stuff in the script to double check triple check to make sure that things were accurate so that we are getting what we hear and see in this movie is the exact same things that they saw and heard during the investigation. So that by the time we reach the end of this movie, in theory, you should have reached the same conclusions that they have. And that is just so impressive. So, so impressive. Uh, especially considering how fast this, both the book and then this movie are made after everything is blown up i mean it's 50 years since nixon resigned you know so this movie came out two years after nixon's resignation i mean that's fast um and for them to you know to be able to take all of their notes i mean like it's not like they spent months and months and months investigating and all you know at some point in like you know late 73 early 74 they wrote like this huge article or something like they're writing articles along the way um about 
different things that are all under kind of this Watergate umbrella. And most of the time, they are on the right path. And it's either they get that confirmation either from from Deep Throat or from you know Sloan or whoever. It's the Sloan grand jury testimony is really the only time where they royally screw up and get called to the carpet on it. And um, again, they leave this they leave this out, but they almost got indicted and would have had to reveal their sources, but they were able to to skirt that. Uh, Thankfully, but they almost got in serious legal trouble Um, because the thing is, it's like you have to be able to get, you know, you hear like, the you know, some of those other wrinkly old white guys that are that are in some of these some of these conference, you know, sitting around these conference tables where they're like, well, we got three sources and they're like, well, why don't you get a fourth? Why don't you get a fifth? And good. It's good to corroborate information, but also it keeps it from somebody reading it and be like well there's only one person that could have known that information therefore they must be the source you know it keeps it from pointing a big arrow to one specific person because then that person could in theory uh you know could get in some serious trouble depending on who they are um you know whether that's breach of contract or releasing sensitive information but you know there's all sorts of things that also protect people from that there's like whistleblower laws and stuff now but um you know this is this is the reason that things like um uh, what's his face um crap the 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 fifth estate um the guy that's like hiding that's overseas that released all that information from like wikileaks um you know there's a there's a there's a re- there's a reason that he is you know uh, over in some country where extradition's not a thing uh <laughs> because uh you know everything pointed to him uh you know and it, it got him into got him into some serious trouble but at the same time this information the information needs to be out there for the betterment of the people um, and that's ultimately why Woodward and Bernstein don't give up on this and work on it for as long as they do. Because this has, I mean, this ended up being like 18 months or something like that, close to two years of their life working on this story and only this story. Um, and, you know, digging and digging and digging. And um, like I said, the, the you know, if, if you like the movie, if you can handle it, read the book and you don't necessarily have to read the book there's an audio version <laughs> so which is what i listen to um and uh like if you want to get the rest of the story um and get an idea of just how much legwork these guys had to put in um and how much they had on their shoulders um because yeah there were other there were other organizations kind of working on it you know we hear them talk about the new york times um because occasionally the times would get the scoop on something ahead of them um but for the most part it's 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 these two guys that have the truth of watergate on their shoulders um and that's you know (laughs) it just makes me so impressed with them it makes me impressed with the the press as a whole and um you know once you realize how much they've gone through i I would hope that most rational people would realize that true, I will say this, true 
news, true press, not this mostly opinion. You can say it, Tucker Carlson. You can say it. Yeah, the you know the, the Fox News, all of those where they are just the it's all it's all opinion pieces. There's no facts there, but true journalism um, is so important, and we can't just brush it off as all fake news or the liberal press or the right wing whatever. Um, because the fact at the end of the day, the facts are the facts, you know, there, and there's no alternative facts. I'm so sorry. That is a load of bullshit as well. <laughs> it's like, we need the media. We need true investigative journalism even now, and even more so now, uh, because there is just so much nonsense out there. Um, so, you know, my hat's off to, 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 both of these guys Uh, that that's great stuff and to put your mind at ease in case you because it happens to me if i can't remember a name you were referring i suppose to julian assange from wikileaks yes yes yeah Yeah. okay yeah yeah because i could see his face yeah but i could not think of his name for the life of me (laughs) (laughs) oh no problem no problem at all yeah and uh zan what did you make of woodstein Woods, yeah, I I do love that scene where Jason Robards just comes out. Woodstein, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's how you pull them both in at the same time. Um, it is so interesting to try and imagine a time when people didn't know who these guys were, <clears throat> because you know, growing up, I was born in 1976, so growing up, um, th- these names were just synonymous with the pinnacle of investigative journalism and what you're shooting for, what you're striving for as a journalist, as a reporter, as an investigator, this is the gold standard, frankly. Um, and it's it's kind of strange to reconcile sometimes because, like I said, I'm not the hugest fan of Bob Woodward sometimes, you know, when I think it, because the first time I really knew who Bob Woodward was, was when his book Wired came out. And that book is not indicative of his talent or John Belushi's talent for that matter. Um, there's a, a famously um, uh, Dan Aykroyd was working on a project with JT Walsh who, who plays Bob Woodward in that movie and um, had him fired. Like he would not work. He would not work with JT Walsh. And, you know, there was one time um, Michael Chiklis tried to speak with him and he just walked away. Like he was very, upset with that project and you know the fact that bob woodward went from this you know in 10 years went from taking down the government (laughs) with facts to this sensationalized thing you know he was he was asked by the family by by judy to do something factual and as they were seeing what he was doing everybody pulled out of it judy pulled out of it Ackery pulled out of it john landis pulled out of it um so I don't know what happened to him. It, it's kind of a strange, it's kind of a strange thing. And um, I, what I think is so, is so interesting too in this with, uh, with Bernstein is they kind of portray him as a sort of a flirt, kind of a womanizer, which he turned out to be, which is hilarious. Like if you've ever, if you've ever read or seen Nora Ephron's heartburn, it's about the two of them. He had a mistress when she was pregnant. Like he, he was kind of a shitty husband to Nora Ephra. <laughs> she tells some weird story about him, about how he had a pet hamster that he kept frozen after it died. Like he couldn't, he kept it in the freezer after it died. Cause he couldn't not, he, he couldn't bear to part with it. It was a weird little story. 
she kept saying that she she had this image of him being in the freezer and thinking it was a potato and getting a real terrible surprise one night. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's true. I mean, it, there's honestly, what's more Gen X than becoming disenfranchised with Woodward and Bernstein? I don't think anything. I mean, somebody who, you know, took down this really horrible thing that happened. I mean, this this was when it comes to government, this is awful. I mean, we and we're seeing it now. We saw it, you know, four years ago, and we'll see it again if if we get that far. If somebody doesn't get off their ass and arrest somebody, we're gonna see it again. Um, and then to go from that to be sort of, you know, sensationalized, you know, gossip rag writers is kind of a is kind of a weird so, you know, first of all, going back to watching this, you know, when you know what like I said, when I first saw this, I think I was a teenager and I knew who Woodward and Bernstein were um, because it was that that name is like Siskel and Ebert. Like they go together and they're, they're hard to separate. Um, Siebert, I guess, is what you call the two of them instead of Woodstein. I don't know. Um, but then to go back and watch this and think think of a time when they were, well, if this is such an important story, who are Woodward and Bernstein that you put on it? You know, th this idea that these are nobody guys. And that's kind of why they had the time to do this. They had the time to make all of these phone calls and be ballsy. You know, like, hi, this is, you know, this is Bob Woodward from the Washington Post. And this is Carl Bernstein from the Washington Post. And I want to, you're who? Like, you know, they're, they're sort of talking to these guys like, um, yeah, whatever. Okay. They're, they're running, they're doing a story about the burglary, whatever. Um, and so they have the time to go over to Jane Alexander's house and drink 10 cups of coffee and, and have this conversation for a long Um, which by the way, is one of my all time favorite scenes in this movie. I, I absolutely love the scene where he's with her and also the scene where they go back to talk to her. Who told you about Porter? Um, you know, just, and the sort of the little tricks they do with each other are so perfect psychology with people. Now here's what you say. We already know Porter. We already know P is Porter and see how she reacts. And they do it so well of like, oh, no, we know P is Porter. And then they just keep going on. They're not like, we know P is Porter. You know, they don't sort of like wait for her. They do such a good job with it. Um, you know, Jane Alexander said, you know, don't you dare film this and put this on screen. I'm just I'm just in a robe and no makeup. But Pakula is like, no, this you, you're never going to you're never going to kill it more than you kill it right here. And she does such a wonderful job. And that is why she gets the Oscar nom for this. Um, but. You know, just they're they're pounding, they're constant pounding the pavement. I, I've talked about this before, how you'll watch movies from the 70s and you'll see an office scene. And you're like, oh, yeah, nobody has a computer. Everybody just has a typewriter and like two phones on their desk. Um, just this idea that it's this open bullpen of, hey, didn't you used to go with this guy? And can you have drinks with him again? And blah, blah, blah. And um, there's no, you know, there, there's no email. And which is probably good because, you know, that would have been monitored, you know, the way that you know, he comes over and uh, he comes over to Bernstein's apartment and he's like, he's like, don't talk. and they start typing because, you know, Deep Throat says that you're being bugged and you're being followed, you know, and this is, and these are not good people. Um, John Mitchell had his own wife kidnapped. Okay. These are terrible people. If you want to read a terrible story about what shit heals these people are, just Google Martha Mitchell. Um, and then if you can go on YouTube and find the episode of Celebrity Ghost Stories where Diane Ladd says that Martha Mitchell was haunting or Mar uh, Martha Mitchell was haunting her, that's actually really fascinating. <laughs> um, but yeah, read about Martha Mitchell and then you'll just you're like, you know, I'm glad you went to jail for 19 fucking months. You're, you're a shitheel. 
these are terrible people. These are terrible people that are willing to do terrible things simply because one megalomaniacal warmonger wants to be the president again. And that's not, that needs to be taken down. And you're so rooting for these guys to be able to get to where they need to get to. And I think that what this story does is really show you that, and granted it's based on their book, but it, it shows you that these guys who are very different styles are able to come together with something is weird here. Something's not, what do you mean one of the burglars was used to work for the CIA? What the hell is that? You know, you've got just some, some newbie reporter, you know, go down and cover that arraignment and see what, see what happens. And he starts talking to, oh, well, you know, I have clients. They're not necessarily here. You know, this whole back and forth saying a bunch of things and not saying anything at all. And then, you know, he's over here. I I worked for the CIA. Excuse me? And then going for it. And then, you know, just finding out that everybody's like, this is the Democratic headquarters. Like something is up here. And, you know, you get, you know, you get the, the wonderful advice of follow the money, which, of course, that's always that's always what it is. Um but it's really a testament to how good these guys were at what they did at, like Rachel was saying, seeking out the actual facts, not an opinion. And, you know, I, I love that they are giving that the, the, they're interviewing people that they're seeing the opinions of, you know, like, like uh, Meredith Baxter telling, telling Stephen Collins character um, quit or I'm divorcing you because this is wrong. And you have the one woman who's like, I'm a lifelong Republican, but I draw the line at this kind of criminal shenanigans, you know, that, that, you know, even, you know, even Republicans were like, Ooh, dude, not cool. And, you know, these guys went, what happened? (laughs) I know where, where did that go? Where did that kind of, that kind of integrity go? Um, the, uh, this idea that, no, we need another source. We need another source. And, you know, Ben Bradley's part of that too. Like this is thin. If you print it, it's going to go in the back of the paper and it's not going to go anywhere. Get me something that is a well-connected piece, well-vetted piece and outlines exactly what happened. And they did. They put together a story that is incredibly convoluted and basically said the committee to reelect the president used their slush fund to pay some dues to break into the Democratic Democratic uh, headquarters. They hired some guy to fly around the country, screw things up at Democratic conventions. They're, they're doing shitty things. And they figured out a way to factually print that in a way that people can understand this convoluted story and understand that this is not how you do it. A dirty win is not a good win. You don't want a dirty win. You want a clean win, you know, which is why you don't say things like stop counting the votes while I'm still ahead. You don't say things like pretend like math isn't real. So the fact that these two guys went from being nothing. And it's also interesting, too, to watch these two guys playing nobodies. And it's Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, who were huge even at the time. You know, he you know, we'd we'd already seen him as Ratso Rizzo. We'd already seen him as Lenny Bruce. And Redford Redford was already monster, huge performer. Um, and even now, when you look back on it, you're like, wow, this movie has friggin' everybody in it. You know, those two guys, Jason Robards, Jack Warner, Martin Balsam, you know, all of these people, you're like, who's not in this at this point? And like I said, these are not the, you know, these are guys who did go on to disappoint me a little bit, but what they did was the right thing. 
they looked at a situation that that smelled dirty and figured out how it was dirty. They figured out where the smell was coming from. They didn't just throw air freshener on it or put a fan in the room to make the smell go more places. They actually figured out where the smell was coming from and figured out what the facts were and what that meant. And in this movie, they don't really give you a lot of information on them personally or their personal lives. Um, you know, cause around, around this time, Bernstein had, you know, just divorced his first wife and, you know, it, Woodward had like just gotten, gotten out of college and he'd been divorced for a couple of years. So you don't really go into that sort of sensationalized stuff. You just see two guys with messy apartments living in DC trying to be reporters. And that's kind of what I care about. You know, when I'm watching these political movies, that's kind of what I care about, about things when that other stuff doesn't actually matter to the story. You know, this is a this is one of those movies where there aren't a lot of great women parts because it was Republican government of the early 70s. There weren't a lot of women involved, um, but the women that we do have are very pivotal, which is good. But we don't have an added in love interest or divorce drama just to make it more dramatic for no reason. They keep all that stuff out of it. And I like that for them because this is a, this movie is about their achievement. You know, they're, you know, they're the work they did and the Washington post backing them is what this story is supposed to be about. You know, we don't need to go into what's up with their personal lives. And it, it does, it, it makes you so wistful for a time when people gave a shit about what an actual fact is, you know, an actual fact does mean more facts are greater currency than opinions. And when you, you know, when you have a news story that is like, this guy is linked in this way. Okay, great. That that's, that's how he's linked. It's not, um, I, I will say this, you know, this movie does kind of overlook Martha Mitchell a little bit, which, you know, but it's, that's a movie on its own. So it's like, I'm, I almost am, am glad that they didn't add her because she's a can of worms that you can't close back up again. Um, but yeah, it's like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, end, end of the story. And, you know, the only time you ever get any sort of like judgment or editorializing is, <clears throat> excuse me, when they are, when they're, they're, uh, talking to Segretti and he's, and he's like, you know, I was a damn good lawyer and I'm probably going to go to jail. And it's like, uh, did you listen to the shit you just said that you did? Like, um, you know, the, the, all of the rationalizing, you know, they, they sort of, the, this movie judges the rationalizing and these guys are just there to listen and they're going to judge the rationalizing more than anything else than the action, which is, I think, where they get some of a lot of their success is they're not, they're not turning people off of talking to them because they're judgmental. They are breaking through the rationalizations. They're saying, well, but I didn't say why, you know, they're, they're coming through all of these things. You know, it's like, it's like, you cannot print that. I had drinks in her apartment. I have, you know, a family and a house and a cat and a dog, you know, you cannot do this to me. And he's like, yeah, no, that's no, I don't want to do that to you. The whole, it was not about saying that he was in some woman's apartment. It's about what he told her when she was in the apartment. And that 
I think right that scene right there encapsulates why this was so successful and why this is so well regarded and why they work so well as journalists, because they don't care that you were in somebody's apartment. They care what you talked about. And that's what was important in this is who was doing what and who was doing who was doing what with the money and who was getting the money, who was distributing the money and who knew what was going on. And like Rachel said, they just had to use the phone and walk around D.C. to figure that out. You know, uh, Bernstein had to go to what Miami. He went to Miami and waited in that office like all day to talk to Ned Beatty for like five minutes. (laughs) Um, This was a lot of work. And especially now. When we look at that and how easy it is, you know, Rachel and I are in different states in the Midwest of the United States. We're talking to you in Milan. Like that would have been really hard in 1972 to do that. And there's no way we could have looked at each other while we did it. You know, we didn't have, you know, satellite link up, hook up TV studio, which is what you would have needed at that time to do what we're doing right now. So the idea of what they found out and how they were able to get people to talk to them with their integrity of not revealing their sources you know deep throat didn't come out until as to who he was until he was like in his 90s in in 2005 and he made that decision they said that they would reveal it after he died but he chose to before he passed away and but they they stood by that they they stood by their not revealing things i mean there was there was an integrity there to the facts and to their word and uh it's it's why they're they're regarded as if you're going to be an investigative journalist, this is this is what you need to aspire to. It, it certainly is, and I am super thankful that we have the technology that we do, so we can actually do you know stuff like this podcast and see each other, talk to each other, and stuff. It's it's amazing. I'm definitely we're very I think we're very very lucky to have the the technology that we do. Even sometimes it does get abused by the wrong people. Sometimes, uh, other than that, I, I you know when it comes to these two characters, I think that it's the determination, the passion that drives both men in what they do is incredibly palpable. And the two, I think, complement each other incredibly well. I mean, though at first when they are thrown together, it seems like they may be at odds and their modus operandi when it comes to their profession appears rather different. As you know, Rachel pointed out, this is also mentioned heavily in the book. As Carl seems more flying by the seat of his pants kind of journalist and eager to jump to multiple stories, because apparently when he's given this assignment, he's like, weren't you? Or he wants to do this assignment. He's like, weren't you doing something else? He's like doing a million things. And the fact that he takes down notes on pretty much anything he has to hand and then presents them to a rather bewildered Woodward, I thought I found that very amusing. And I'm sure the amount of caffeine and nicotine that flow through his body do not help with his hyperactivity. Yet he gets the job done and he won't take no for an answer. Case in point, uh, you know, you mentioned Zan when he flies off to Miami, when he tricks that one secretary to get a word with Martin Dardis, it shows how far he will go to get the information he needs. And I think a similar case can be made with Bob Woodward as well, when he uses this rather, you know, Rachel mentioned this rather sketchy and mysterious source like Deep Throat to gather intel. Granted, neither of our two openly break the law or do anything untoward, but as the dedicated and devoted journalists they are, they will do what they can to get to the truth. And of course, you know, speaking of Bob, he is, I think, more of the calm presence in the Woodstein duo, never raising his voice, even when he's clearly angry or frustrated. And his style of working is definitely more clean and organized than Bernstein's. And even though the two could not be more different in their styles and approach, they definitely are a formidable force together. 
And I mentioned the, the paranoia aspect earlier. As the two get closer and closer to the truth, they too are taken over by the paranoia that other characters that they have come across have. And this is clearly, of course, seen, you know, you mentioned, Zan, when they refuse to speak to each other, but use the typewriter in order to communicate. And of course, having a source like Deep Throat and being told your life is in danger will certainly do that to you. So uh, I, I, I absolutely love these guys. And it made me kind of smart seeing how young they both were. Because when you look at Dustin Hoffman, I'm like, wow, he was very young there. And the hair, I love the hair. It was fantastic. So let's round off our characters by looking at two significant guys in different ways. We have Jason Robards as the aforementioned Ben Bradley and Hal Holbrook as the aforementioned Deep Throat. The guy, of course, gave us that famous now phrase, follow the money. So Zan, starting with you, what did you make of Ben and Deep Throat? Well, I, I love Jason Robards and I think that's kind of why I have, you know, it's like, Jason Robards is kind of why I like the real life Ben Bradley because I, <laughs> I found myself being interested in him as a person because of this role because of seeing seeing what Robards did with him and seeing how he <clears throat> he's basically what Woodward and Bernstein are going to be when they grow up is is what it seems like where he's saying um yes I see what you're coming from I know you want this published it is too thin you don't want it to get lost. It's just too thin. And when, you know, when they have that that moment where he he's, you know, that you know, I'm gonna count to ten and you hang up and I'll know that, you know, do you understand it? And then it goes crazy the next day. And he's, you know, you know, they're talking about how they're gonna deal with this and what they're gonna do and how they're gonna fix um uh fix the situation he's like here here's my non-committal statement it's like we stand by our story ben bradley <laughs> it's like okay all right that works because because he knows where they're going and he knows what they're doing they might that's the thing they they might play some mind tricks on people but it's it's more like a a, a carnival psychic rather than like a cop doing something illegal like um you uh you sort of try and read facial expressions rather than, you know, lying and saying um, <clears throat> that, uh, oh, yeah, all you have to do is confess to this crime and then you can go home. It's like, that's not how it works. Um, but it's, you know, when they're saying, you know, well, we know P is Porter. How do you know about Porter? I just found out because you just told me, you know, <laughs> it's it's more like it's more like that. Um, so they're not exactly... And it's what everybody does when they're trying to get information. They they pretend like they know more so they can, you know, commiserate with somebody who does know and they can either get confirmation or denial. And that's what they're that's what they're doing. And, but he knows that they are trying to get to the meat of it and how far this goes. And they know how far this is going and he knows what this is doing to people. And so he's very he's very cognizant of that but he doesn't like i said he doesn't want this to trip over and become nothing he doesn't want people to be like oh another stupid little watergate story again he wants this to be the bombshell that it needed to be and you know you have that scene where they come over and they're like we can't talk to you you have to come outside <laughs> don't talk in the house we're being bugged and he's not going guys i'm too tired for this crap like he's not giving them a hard time about any of it he's very like all right I'm going to come outside in my, in my, you know, my robe and my jammies and he's going to listen and he's going to say, we'll keep doing that. And if you fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Like he's just saying like, do not, 
do not do this again. Make sure this make sure this goes through. And you have that moment where he's telling the story of what he wrote about J. Edgar Hoover. And then, you know, and and and, and by the way, fuck you, Ben Bradley. <laughs> I love that story. And he says that, you know, the next day, you know, he's declared, you know, he's declared the head of it for life. And now you've screwed us and stuck us with J. Edgar Hoover for the rest of his life. Um, he... He said, I did it wrong, but I wasn't wrong. He wasn't, he wasn't wrong, but he, you know, it, he didn't do it the right way. But then he's like, run that baby. Cause he knows they're not wrong, but he's been there. He's been where they are and he knows what their pitfalls are going to be and how they need to have their checks and balances and cover their asses and make sure it's like, get me, how many more sources does he want us to have? It's like enough that you can't no one can backpedal like no that many people can't backpedal at the same time so yeah ben bradley is what woodward and bernstein should be when they grow up is is how i is how i sort of see see him in this and like i said i i adore jason robards there there's you know he's he's always wonderful he's always really good um he he never he never disappoints from you know even in something like you know parenthood (laughs) <laughs> he he does not disappoint at all and there's uh, uh, there's a reason he won this oscar because he's you know like like i said before and we'll talk about this later there were some major amazing performances this year but he was not anything to sneeze at i mean he was really fantastic in this you know even he even shine he even shines around jack warden and martin balsam you know they're all they're all sort of, you know, making sure that, you know, they're all kind of there as, um, you know, Howard Simmons was the managing editor at the time. And um, the, you know, Harry Rosenfeld was, you know, was the editor of the local section. At, so they're all editors. But, you know, he was the he was like the the executive managing editor. Ben Bradley was like the guy. Um, but he even sort of outshines their performances, I think. And that's nothing against Jack Warden and Martin Balsam. They're fantastic actors. But there's that calm, knowledgeable, not fatherly, but mentor performance that he gives. Like, do this the right way. Don't do what I did. You know, that I think makes this makes him really special in this story. Deep Throat's interesting. I, I love how when you watch this, and you realize just how copied the concept of deep throat is <laughs> throughout film and television. You know, if you've seen one episode of the X-Files, you're like, I know where they got the cancer man from. It's you, you know where that comes from. We've seen it parodied in the Simpsons. Um, and you have, you know, you have Mark Twain in the shadows smoking in a parking garage. Um, giving giving out secrets and you're like okay wow all right so here we are and he does do the kind of follow the money and that's exactly what it is um and i like that they respected the promises they made him oh excuse me the promises they made to him to keep him um confidential um you know he you know he he was with the fbi you know this was you know, he was he was deep into this. And, you know, the name Deep Throat, careful when you Google that is all I'm saying. 
careful what you click on if you want to learn more about him. But yeah, like I said, he came um, in 2005 when he was in his 90s. He came out and said, did an article for Vanity Fair, which I friggin ran to. Let me tell you, I was like, I was like, oh, my God. And what was so amazing about that time, I don't know if you guys remember when this happened, um, but it was like, OK, Mark felt OK. Like we were just like, OK, now we know. And we're, we're, we're sort of done with it because it wasn't some sort of bombshell. Like we didn't find out that like it had been Martha Mitchell or somebody or it was Spiro Agnew or it was Gerald Ford or something. It wasn't some some major controversial player. It was some guy who was with the FBI and just was around everything and saw everything and just knew that it was a freaking problem. You know, they don't even tell you in this movie how he met Woodward, how they knew him, nothing. They keep him very confidential and they keep him. And Hal Holbrook does a fantastic job, too, of just keeping this character very level headed. You know, he's not there's nothing about this character to give away who he really is to and because and the general public isn't going to know you know the general public doesn't know you know there's not like some tiger beat magazine of fbi agents that the general public would learn about um but people he worked with could have and this movie could have really done that and they don't do that so it's it's a fascinating performance to be such a pivotal character in a story such a pivotal character in u.s history and be so nothing and i think that's really pretty fascinating how they do this um and how holbrook does a does a fantastic job but this is again this is people who don't think the system is their playground they're working within a system because they believe in the system they believe in our government they believe in this country they believe in what this country is supposed to stand for and when you start using it to your own personal advantage they have a problem with it and deep throat really encapsulates that you know he, he is everything on the line he knows lives are in danger he knows careers are in danger um but he's doing it anyway because <clears throat> this is a problem this is not good he doesn't want to work for these people he doesn't want to work for this kind of president um so that's why he's doing what he's doing but all of that everything that i'm saying about him everything that i'm inferring about him is just sort of inferred by the fact that he does what he does in this movie i don't know anything about this guy you know there there's there's an article in vanity fair in 2005 and you can probably find it online um i would uh i would say google mark felt vanity fair before you google deep throat vanity fair um because you're going to find a little bit more of a pointed search so i'm saying um so yeah it's interesting i mean it's interesting but it's not somebody we know much about he's not a particularly sensationalized you know he's not a cancer man from 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 x-files you know he wasn't at the scene of every major event in his in the 20th century he wasn't one of those people he just was he just knew something and he knew who to tell he, he most certainly did and i love uh, love the way that Wayland smithers plays this character in the simpsons this absolutely fantastic Waylon Smithers is so perfect, you know, just in the garage, you know, why, why does Waylon Smithers need to be smoking? Because Deep Throat smokes and, you know, and how Homer just outs him. Hey, Mr. Smithers. All right. Well, now that you've seen me, you might as well just give me a ride home. And he's like cramped in the backseat with Bart and Lisa <laughs> explaining why he's doing this. And that's, that's another one. Smithers, when they, you know, what we're referring to is the Simpsons episode, Sideshow Bob Roberts, which is, I believe, fifth season, fifth or fourth season. 
um, where Sideshow Bob runs for mayor of Springfield. And it's the title comes from the Tim Robbins movie, Bob Roberts, which if you want to get pissed off about politics, watch Bob Roberts. Um, it's very good. Tim Robbins is very wonderful in it. Um, but uh, they rig an election. They, they rig an election and uh, Smithers is the one who blows the whistle on it because he's gay and the Republicans are not not good when it comes to gay rights. And so, again, yeah, he's doing it because this is freaking wrong. <laughs> I totally agree. And I, and I definitely uh, will also say definitely check out that that Simpsons episode. Indeed, Sideshow Bob Roberts is, is fantastic. And of course, all the homages it, it makes, makes to this movie are just beautiful. And Rachel, what did you make of Bradley and Deep Throat? Um, well, I love I love Bradley um, and the I mean the whole thing with him. If you really want a good like interesting like loose Nixon trilogy, you know trilogy, I watch the Post because you need to know about the Pentagon Papers, and then watch this, and then watch Frost Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that tells you really everything you need to know about Richard Nixon. Uh and, and why he did what he did. Um so uh, I mean and of course um uh Bradley we've seen his son in spotlight uh Bradley Jr. um so uh and then you know the the movie The Post talks about uh Catherine Graham uh, who was the one of the owners of the the post at the time of the the Pentagon Papers? Um, so um, yeah, I mean, Brett, you don't you can't be the head of a newspaper of that size without knowing the ins and outs of everything. Um, you know, he could have been just a you know bought a newspaper because it's a good and investment maybe i don't know uh <laughs> um and, but you know it's it's obvious when he sits down talks to his reporters talks to you know the the chiefs or the heads of the you know the the different parts you know the the local stuff the the national stuff you know opinion pieces it's all these bits and you know the reasons that your newspaper if you actually picked up a physical newspaper why there's they're so big because all these bits and pieces need to go together and he's got to know every he's got to know what everybody's working on he's got to make sure that you know they're not um you know while the the press has a lot of leeway as far as free speech and freedom of the press there are laws you know, get things like libel and, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. But so <laughs> the fact that, you know, these guys can just bring him, you know, a draft of something and, you know, it can't, not surprise he carries like a red pen, you know, in his pocket and he's just ready to just, you know, cross that stuff and write his own and be able to tell them whether something is, is worth printing or not and why um just shows that he is somebody that knows the business that he's in um and that a fact that he backs his reporters and uh takes them seriously while so many even you know we see some of the other like i said the stuffy old white guys who are just cracking jokes about you know uh 
Bernstein Woodward and Watergate and you know so many people are like well you know why would somebody you know why is this person supposedly involved you know it doesn't make sense and it's like well it doesn't make sense yet because we don't have all pieces yet and he believes them when they show up to his house in the middle of the night going we can't speak inside your place is probably bugged um so um yeah he's just he, he's he's there's a reason that the post is was and still is can you know considered uh you know one of the pillars of american news um so i mean i follow the post <laughs> you know i necessarily read it but like i follow them on like you know twitter and facebook and stuff um so um their their track record you know speaks for themselves and the bradleys speak for themselves you know obviously his son went on to the the boston globe which you know we discussed that when we talked about spotlight so um you know he is a, a person and is a businessman has has proven proven himself throughout the years oh and the man had a wicked sense of humor absolute wicked sense of humor and they really had to cut back on a lot of his, of his quips because uh, they did not think that it would be believable just like his dry and sarcastic sense of humor um they didn't think anybody would actually believe that he's like that but they put a few in there i mean i love the line when uh you know the one guy immediate calls him after denying that he'd had drinks with one of his employees and he's like i don't want to print that you were at sally's apartment i just want to print what you said while you're at sally's apartment <laughs> you know? like, uh, yeah although at, at some point earlier i think it was funny because he was talking about you know the like they were talking about their sources and deep throat and stuff and he's like you know something about trust and he's like i don't trust anyone and i'm like why are you in the news business <laughs> you're in the wrong line of business dude if you don't trust anyone <laughs> but i get what he's trying to say um and the deep throat uh you know obviously an infamous name when you're talking about conspiracy um uh especially you know in the in the in the government um and the fact that the yeah they were able to keep his identity secret for so long like when they were casting this movie woodward you know was given like headshots and they were like you know who just based on looks would be a good portrayal of of deep through deep throat and he's like well it's like i can't be like that person looks exactly like him because then that gives someone an idea of what deep throat looks like so he had to be very careful about being like you know eventually you know how halbrook was like yeah he would be a good person to play deep throat um you know and yeah it wasn't until 2005 and it was because of this vanity fair article that uh you know deep throat was finally identified and you know woodward was able to to be like yep uh because uh, i guess um deep throat's lawyer <laughs> one of the people who knew who deep throat was uh was also involved um and it's it yeah again one of those you know you can't you'd have they had to corroborate information even for someone like deep throat because if they only had if they took it just on based on what he said if it's information that like 
only nobody, you know, that nobody else knows, someone within, in this case, the FBI be like, well, there's only one person who would have known that information um, because of their status. You know, uh, Deep Throat ended up being second, the, the guy who was second, he was second in command at the FBI. So, you know, like J. Edgar Hoover's at the top. This guy is J. Edgar Hoover's like right hand man. Yeah, right below him in the, in the hierarchy. So, yeah, this guy's high up. He knows everything that's going on. Um, and that's why he was, you know, he was, he could corroborate information that Woodward would bring to him, but they couldn't necessarily spill his guts. And it's not till they get to the point where they realize, you know, how deep this thing goes and how high up the chain of command in washington it goes and how dangerous this is getting that woodward finally is like you know what i'm tired of your shit and your kind of you know riddles i need solid information because this you know i'm not <laughs> he's like i want to see this through i don't want to die necessarily in the process of this you know it's like the sooner we can Blow this thing wide open, those people can be taken care of, and in theory, their lives won't be in danger anymore. Um, and yeah, uh, the the somebody that high up at the FBI would know those things. Um, that he's he's eventually able to either corroborate or give you know names or dates or whatever uh, to Woodward to kind of finally blow this thing up. But it, it still takes time. You know, again, this only is seven months of, you know, almost two years of work. Um, but it's, you needed, you needed someone, It you, they needed a source like that. You know, Woodward was very fortunate that he had established a relationship with someone like this, that they were able to um, work out a way of communicating uh yeah with the putting he would put he would put his plant with the flag out on his out on his out on his porch and then he would get a uh a, a note in his news you know a a, a notice in a, a bit in his newspaper with uh a time um and it would have to be somebody who was able to keep an eye on bob to know when he's put the flag out be able to send in the the time of meeting in his newspaper, know when Bob has left his apartment and is making the trek to this underground garage. Because uh, it was not just a matter of, oh, I need to be eat, meet Deep Throat at 2 a.m. I'm going to catch a cab. No, because one, this wasn't close to where Bob lived. It was actually across the, the, the state line in, in Virginia. Um and, but he would have to take a cab so far, have that cab drop him off, walk several blocks, pick up another cab, go so far, be dropped off, and then walk. So it would be like a whole thing to make sure that he was not followed. Um, so, you know, the people would not know where he, where he is or, you know, where he was going. Um, because this whole thing... Uh, you know, even though he's technically not a character in this film, not you know, not played by anybody, but Richard Nixon. The whole reason this thing happened is because Richard Nixon was the most paranoid motherfucker on the planet. He the the Pentagon Papers 
absolutely threw him into a tailspin. And the fact that that information got out just absolutely lit a fire under his ass. And from that point on, he wanted control over everything and wanted to know everything. And it started out kind of small potatoes with uh, people like uh, Segretti and some others uh, that were hired and partially paid out of the slush fund that would go around trying to ruin the Democrat, whoever was running on the Democratic tickets, uh, campaigns. So they would go to places or call up, play, like if they knew that the Democrats were holding a rally or something somewhere, they would wait until like the day before and then call up that venue pretending to be a representative and be like, can we change the time to like 9 p.m. from 6 o'clock? Or they'd say it's canceled completely. And then when the actual Democrats and their people show up, everything would be effed up. Uh, and then it got to the point where they were doing things like, uh, because Nixon was behind in the polls to um, Muskie, that's when they started to do things like the, what they called the rat, funky, rat fucking, where it got even more you know, devious and maybe not necessarily technically illegal, but in this case, they, the, you know, um, uh, you know, they wrote, someone wrote this letter pretending that it was from Muskie, essentially degrading the Canadians and calling them Canucks, <laughs> which is what they call the Canuck letter, uh, bad mouthing Canadians. And, uh, uh, essentially caused Muskie to to have to drop out of the race because Nixon was falling behind Muskie in in the polls, and then McGovern became the front runner, and that's who Nixon wanted Nixon's people wanted Nixon to run against because they thought they had a better chance against McGovern. Um, and um, in, in that case, you know, once McGovern became the Democratic nominee, Nixon actually was doing well in the polls and looked like he was going to beat McGovern. A lot of people thought it was going to be like a freaking landslide, like 90% of the, he'd get like 90% of the votes, which it wasn't even close to that. He got like 61% or something Nixon did. So it was still a, a decent win, but it wasn't the landslide that a lot of people did. But... Um, and he's only mentioned a few times and does and that actually doesn't play a, a big part in this. But uh, if Nick wants to share it, I sent him the link to the first part of a multi-part, it's like six parts series on G. Gordon Luddy, Liddy, who uh, ultimately was the quote-unquote mastermind of the Watergate break-in because he had worked for the the, the feds um, in the FBI, ended up getting fired or discharged however that works when you're in a federal you know working in the, for a federal position like that but g gordon liddy fancied himself like james bond and so he re he really loved the idea of spying and like using spy technology all of this stuff so actually the watergate hotel had been broken in once before and on because liddy went to the president and was like you know, I'm, you know, I want to spy, you know, the Democrats are set up at the Watergate. I want money 
to buy equipment, you know, recording equipment, cameras, microphones, whatever. And we'll go plant all these bugs and stuff at the Watergate. And then we can get information on what the Democrats are doing, you know, what the McGovern campaign is is planning on doing. <clears throat> and Liddy was like, I want a million dollars. And the White House was like, no, you're not getting a million dollars. And I think they eventually settled on like quarter of a million dollars or something like that. And so they broke into the Watergate once, went, planted a bunch of microphones and recording equipment that did not work because they did not set it up properly. Like they didn't put the proper batteries in it or whatever. So that's why they had to break in again to fix their fuck up from the first break in. And Liddy, because he was so enamored with spy novels and movies and stuff, he was the one that suggested putting the tape on the door. And if it hadn't been for the tape on the door, that poor man working security probably would not have noticed and they might have gotten away with it <laughs> but liddy was so freaking incompetent and the people and the guys that have you know the the five that first get arrested are also incompetent obviously because they set up the spying equipment incorrectly on the first go-round it's just this whole thing where it's like these people think that they are being so slick and so smart but actually have no idea what the fuck they are doing and it's like you it's like it's more like the pink panther like <laughs> as far as spying is concerned here <laughs> so uh but yeah and liddy is actually the one that ultimately takes like the biggest fall for everything like some of these people yeah they go to jail for like 30 days or 14 months or something but liddy goes to jail for years because he refuses to name names that's why when um uh at one point uh uh deep throat's telling woodward about he was at an event once and liddy sticks his hand over a candle and leaves it there even once his flesh starts to burn liddy prided on himself that he had done all this stuff throughout his life so that once he became the master spy he thought he was going to be that he had trained himself so that he would never break if he was ever interrogated no matter how they tortured him and that included things like practicing burning himself on purpose to the point where he would not flinch because <laughs> again he thought himself this james bond-esque type of type of individual when the man was really an idiot uh so and he was surrounded by idiots and but he played into nixon's paranoia and nixon you know he it's like let's sabotage all the democrats so that we can get the the people the guy running against him that we think we could beat and even once they got that that's not good enough we still need to see if we can get some maybe some dirt on the democrats or you know, it maybe we'll know what you know the Democrats are going planning on doing, and we can get a leg up on them and stuff like that. And then on top of that, the thing that ends up doing Nixon in after you know, the thing that ultimately Woodward and Bernstein uncover that's like the ultimate smoking gun, and I can't remember who it is that they get this information from. Um, is they find out that Nixon has bugged, essentially bugged the Oval Office 
on purpose so that everything that is said in the Oval Office was recorded, whether it, it, it implicates him in anything or not. And as once they get their hands on those tapes and, and get transcripts and realize there's a chunk of it missing, that's what ultimately takes Nixon down. But it's Nixon wanted everything recorded so that he could and have it transcripted so that he could double check and make sure that people were telling him what he wants to hear, you know, agreeing with what he says or, you know, uh, you know, following orders. It's just the man was so paranoid about everything. And it's that hubris is what takes Nixon down. But they're, the process of trying to cover this up with money going through Mexico and then coming back from Mexico in the form of Mexican checks. Uh, instead of having to go through the process of setting up like a shell corporation, which they did that too, but there's a bit more work involved with that. So they found sometimes if they needed money quickly and taking the time to set up like a shell corporation would take too long. Let's just send the money to Mexico. It'll go through a Mexican bank and then we'll come back, you know, as Mexican checks. And then you know, it's like, oh, the whole thing is just so, you know, and people, you know, people only knowing so many like layers deep of who's involved before it goes off. It branches off into, you know, either the FBI or the CIA or the Shell Corporation or this law firm in california that's supposed to exist but doesn't and then this other like bank or law firm in florida that's supposed to exist but doesn't actually exist and people using assumed names like it's just a shit show an absolute shit show and you know if if it just hadn't been for the idiocy of a handful handful of people nixon may have gotten away with it is the thing but at the end once once stuff started rising to the surface thankfully there's enough people like sloan and like that poor woman uh you know that ends up <laughs> being visited by bernstein for six hours while he drinks her sister's coffee and smokes his her sister's cigarettes um there's people that realize that this is just bad and want to do the right thing, even though they, you know, they've probably been threatened. They know they're being followed, um, but they would rather do the right thing than keep silence. Uh, you know, obviously Sloan pushed a little by his wife. You know, it's like, I will leave you. Even though I'm pregnant with your child, I will leave you if you don't resign and do the right thing which is good. And then that poor woman who was, uh, I think she was, she's a assistant to someone in finance, um, which, you know, she was obviously scared, but at the same time you could just see in her body language. And, you know, this is described in, in their book too, that it's like, it's obvious she wants to say something. You know, you get these people that are like, I know something and I gotta say something. And, it's like, does fear win or does the desire to tell the truth win? And thankfully, there was enough people that were willing to tell the truth. Sometimes right away, sometimes they were caught. Um, and, you know, as we saw in the, the ending, you know, several people were went to jail because of, of perjury, <laughs> um, lying under oath. Uh, but thankfully, there's enough people that were willing to 
do what is right that helped open doors and uh, give both Bernstein and Woodward opportunities to ultimately find the truth, which people need to be doing always. Surely we just need enough people to sing like canaries. <laughs> like, come on, it's not worth it. <laughs> If only that we the world were more truthful. I uh, I I definitely agree with you there, Rachel. And thank you, of course, for sharing all those, all those great facts. Of course, behind you know uh, behind Lydia and what have you. And I will definitely be putting the link to uh, to the the, the you know, what you sent me in our in our linear notes for sure. Uh, so when it comes to these two characters, I have you know as Zan mentioned earlier, I have yet to find a movie where Jason Brobards gives a bad performance, and this film is no different. As even with the limited screen time he has in this one, he makes every moment on camera and every line spoken count. I mean, his approach to what Woodstein is doing is skeptical at first due to the lack of details. However, I found that he almost acts as a surrogate father to both our journalists. I think he clearly believes in both of them and is the only one to allow them to continue working the Watergate story, while others like Rosenfeld and Simons feel it is pretty dead in the water and won't go anywhere. But I do feel that through this almost parental tough love approach, Ben gives Woodstein that extra push to do their best. And that is also what a good leader does with his team. You get the best out of them with constri constructive criticism and support. When it comes to Deep Throat, aside from, of course, giving us that great line, follow the money, I do think he very much represents the, the, the idea of knowing too much can lead one into paranoia and fear for one's life. As the fact that he doesn't even want to reveal his own face to Bob and is always seen in the dark very much highlights, I think, that lack of trust, even with someone as trustworthy as Bob, and shows you how fearful and paranoid the man is, understandably, not to mention that he never speaks straight to Bob, but he uses these metaphors and these vague phrases like the legendary follow the money. He reminded me to a certain extent of Marvin Boggs from the Red movies, which were play, was, was played masterfully by John Malkovich, as in he's a wealth of knowledge that has that constant concern that everybody is out to get him and is watching him, but will, he will use his knowledge for good. Granted, Marvin Boggs is a more exaggerated version of the man who knew too much, if you will, but I, I kind of I got that parallel there. And uh, these are two great actors who did, did, brought fabulous performances to these roles. So getting to how this movie ended, of course, on January the 20th of 1973, Bernstein and Woodward type the full story while a television in the newsroom shows Nixon taking the, the oath of office for his second term as president. A month, we get the montage of Watergate-related teletype headlines from the following years that are shown, ending with the report of Nixon's resignation and the inauguration of President Gerald Ford on August the 9th of 1974. So, Rachel, what did you make of our ending? Uh, I mean, that kind of... It, it's essentially the... journal, You know, because of the time period, the journalistic equivalent of them just putting out kind of, like, cards... Or, you know, just wall, you know, a thing of text up on the screen, uh, you know, explaining what happens next. Uh, but the fact they do it kind of in the, you know, in this format of it being, you know, written out, uh, you know, as as uh, copy for the newspapers uh, is, is uh, smart. Because um, this, I mean, this film really does not have much of a score. And the, the consistent 
you know, quote unquote, if you wanted to call it that score is the sound of typewriters. That is the, the real kind of background music, uh, because the, the, the typewriter is the instrument, um, for this entire thing. Uh, you know, every time these, these guys go to type something out, which I don't know if this is accurate to Bob Woodward or if this is a Robert Redford thing that he types with just his index fingers. <laughs> Or if that's a man thing, I don't know what. Um, but it's like, dude, you could type faster if you used more than just your pointer finger. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, it, you know, it's it, again because this movie only covers seven months. Yeah, you know, if you know your American history, you know that Nixon eventually resigns, but that doesn't happen until seventy four. Yeah, in the middle of 74. So uh, there's still a lot of time to cover. And it's like, you know, what happens to all of these people that, you know, even if we never see them on screen, their names have been mentioned. It's like, what, you know, what happened to the, the five people that initially got arrested? And what happens to, yeah, Segretti? And what happens to Sloan? And what happens to whoever? Um, and this is their opportunity to tell us at least... A little bit of what happens, you know. Uh, yeah, Segretti served four months out of his six-month sentence and then got disbarred. Um, you know, this person went to jail for 30 days and this, you know, and, um, you know, eventually reaches where, you know, as, as uh, and again, not every go person went to jail because of, you know, the break-in or something other. They were, they went to jail for perjury. Or lying to the grand jury, lying under oath. Um, which it's like, it, it, if you know they lied and then you ultimately find out the truth and the truth is that they broke a law, why can't they also be sent, you know, charged and sentenced for the thing they did wrong on top of the lying under oath? Uh, <laughs> like you can charge people with multiple things. Last time I checked, um, but uh it, like i said uh, uh, liddy you know, is the guy that takes the the biggest hit because he refuses to 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 name names um but he even gets out you know before he's he's served his his sentence for good behavior or whatever he ends, he ends up going on an episode of fear factor when he was like 70 something years old or something like that it was weird um but uh yeah, that's it. It all ultimately is is the resignation of 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 Tricky Dick, uh, Richard Nixon, and then he immediately gets pardoned a month later by Gerald Ford. <laughs> so it's like, not that that really puts Nixon in anybody's good graces, because again, if you watch Frost Nixon, you see that Nixon still, you know, kind of a, a paranoid motherfucker uh, who thinks that he did absolutely nothing wrong um and uh you know thinks that he was only doing what was right and best for the american people where have we heard that before that, that's that's a great concluding note there rachel where have we heard that before indeed <laughs> and zan what did you make of our ending well you know i love a come up in story so this is always great <laughs> and this is one of those where the end it ends how it ends this is this is how this story ends and i love that it ends with 
you know, five minutes of me reading who went to jail for this shit. And, you know, that's um, how it should be. Get off your ass, everybody, and arrest people. Um, <clears throat> I like the teletype. I think the teletype is a cool montage because it's not something that we see that often anymore. It's a wonderful relic of how reporting used to go. It would go through on teletype. There, This was... This was like an early fax machine. You would send something through teletype and it would automatically type it out like that. That's, it was, that, this is our old technology. So I like that the teletype goes through. I think it's very dramatic. Um, and I like that it just sort of ends with them doing their job. And then we have all these teletypes of here's, here's what happened and here's, and Nixon says he's not resigning, but then resigns. <laughs> so, um, it uh yeah would i have liked to have seen more people go to jail for longer because of this situation well of course i would have but you know that's not this movie's fault um yeah and everything rachel's been talking about about historically what's what's gone on with this it is such a convoluted clusterfuck and g gordon liddy is such a freaking nut job and this is what happens when you have people with megalomaniacal aspirations who come into government you know, you're, you're, you know, you're supposed to be bland and mild mannered to be in government. Like you're, you're supposed to be doing what is right and what's the prudent thing. You're not supposed to be here because you wish you were a spy, like, like Ian Fleming thinks of a spy. Um, you're, yeah, the, the, some of these people are such idiots. Um, but it gives you information on who gets arrested and then even what happens to our sort of protagonists you know you find out <clears throat> excuse me i uh, you you find out what what happens with sigretti and you find out what happens with sloan um and they're not ones that get talked about that much you know the ones who are you know just they're trying to do what's right or they're 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 just in it for the um for the you know for the thrill and the uh the you know upwardly mobile action that it might give them in their careers type of thing um and again you know there's no tease about deep throat or anything i like that they don't talk about like deep throat has still never been identified you know they don't do anything stupid like that and they let a lot of this speak for itself they give you these they give you the details of the jail sentences and when they happened because we all know what happened with this situation we all know what happened with with nixon and we all know that woodward and bernstein went on to be possibly the most famous journalists of the 20th century um, so what the details they're giving us are the quick from the Washington Post, so-and-so was arrested and got in and was, you know, and got this felony on this date in this many months. So it was a good way of giving us a lot of minutia in a creative way. So I, I do like the way this movie ended. I am right there with you. And I think it very much, you know, plays into what we've kind of been talking about throughout the course of this uh, review, as in giving the facts and not opinions. And that's literally what we get at the end of this movie is just facts and no opinions. You know, like you were mentioning, you know, Zan, the fact of, and also Rachel about the fact of, you know, this happened on this date and, and then the story, it's just cut clean. We cut all become facts. Columbo. <laughs> exactly. We all become there Peter Falk, just the facts, man. 
Exactly. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Speaking, that's and that's a great segue into what we'll be talking about next next time, <laughs> Rachel. That you brought that up. So, uh, well, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Mr. Peter Falk. Um, but that that said, yeah, I think this, as other than just the facts, I think the scene is very emblematic, also of the the hard work and the dedication and the perseverance required in investigative journalism. And of course, you know, as we saw throughout the movie, despite the various obstacles and threats that our duo uh, had to face, they remained steadfast in their pursuit of the truth, ultimately bringing about, oh yeah, significant political consequences. And I think the final moments of this film with the printing presses rolling and the news spreading, it very much is a tri- it's a silently triumphant conclusion to their efforts. As I think it highlights the importance possibly of a free press in holding those in power accountable and ensuring transparency in government, which we sorely need. And overall, I do think that this ending leaves us very much, or left me anyway, with this sense, like Zan mentioned, loving revenge stories. I did definitely get that sense of vindication and the realization of the crucial role that journalism had played and can play and hopefully will continue to play in a democratic society. So uh, I, I was very happy with this ending. Just also just the sound of the words being typed out. It was there was something very rhythmic to it, like you were saying, Rachel, something like the beating of a drum, like dun 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 dun, dun kind of thing. I mean, we do get some of the Shire score, I believe, uh, with the end credits and at the top of this movie, but. Yeah, the, the Shire score, as beautiful as it is, is, is barely there. It's more the soundtrack of an office, the soundtrack of the, the sounds of the street or things like that. That's more, I think, of the soundtrack. As much as, you know, I'm not faulting David Shire. I think he did a great job with what soundtrack we got. So, yeah, I was very happy with this ending myself. So getting to if we were the Academy segment, this movie had was, of course, nominated for Best Picture, which we had talked about when we reviewed Rocky with Mike from Mike, Mike and Oscar's podcast. However, added to that, Jason Robards did take home, like Zan mentioned, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. William Goldman won Best Adapted Screenplay. And the film also took, took home the, Oscar, the Oscars for Art Direction and Sound. And of course, Alan Pakula was nominated for Best Director, which he lost to John G. Abelson for Rocky. Also, Jane Alexander was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which was won by Beatrice Strait for Network. And the film was also nominated for Best Editing, which was won by Rocky. So, Zan, other than the best picture, which I mentioned we had talked about previously, and of course, for more of that, go in this story review of Rocky, did this film deserve to win in the other categories it was nominated for? Absolutely, absolutely. I actually rewatched Rocky the other day um, after learning that Carl Weathers had passed away. So I rewatched it um, just for sentimental purposes. <laughs> Um, and I'm still on the fence about it. I think these are the two main contenders for Best Picture. Um, I Because of that, I do like that All the President's Men did get the sort of Best Picture award, which is the adapted, this the screenplay award. This one won adapted screenplay. Um, <clears throat> I might have given this to Pakula for direction. Um, we had some good direction this year. Um, but, you know, with the things of just the 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 intenseness of these intimate moments with people, you know, when you have, you know, you're, you're, you know, Sloan is sort of sitting in the dark in his house. And then you have um, Jane Alexander, you know, just sort of in her house dress or, or on the veranda, on the veranda type of thing. And just sort of seeing how intimately everybody's letting them into their lives, into their, into their homes, into their opinions, into their knowledge. Um, 
I think there's something special about that. And, you know, you, you do have the, you know, the direction of, in the cinematography of that wonderful overhead shot when they're looking through the library um, records to try and figure out who checked out what. And, you know, this movie does win for art direction, but it, it doesn't even get nominated for cinematography. Um, and I probably would have given cinematography to Logan's run, to be honest with you. Um, might have given art direction to Logan's run as well. And maybe, you know, swap, but there are some really wonderful directing things in this one. Um, Rocky also gets best editing. And I feel like this one is a fantastic one for editing. It's paced perfectly. I think it's absolutely paced perfectly. And, you know, you have these wonderful shots of looking at them, looking at the typewriter, looking around the, you know, it, I think it's really well done. And I probably would have given this one editing as well. Um, I've said before, that I don't think they nominated either Redford or um, Hoffman for this, because how do you pick one? You know, they're both main I mean, the, the main character of this movie is Woodstein. So they're kind of the same thing. So you can't nominate one or the other. So you kind of can't have them as best actor. Um, personally, I feel like Hoffman is a little bit more of a versatile actor than Redford is. Redford falls into that category where every time, and it could be because he's legendary, um, but I don't feel like Paul Newman falls into this category. And they're so often together because of Butch and Sundance. Um, but I feel like Robert Redford is always Robert Redford's fill in the blank. You know, he's always Robert Redford as. And I feel like there are people like that. Like, I, I feel like Brad Pitt is that way. That it's always Brad Pitt as. That there's a reputation that precedes the character. Um, I think... The only reason Tom Hanks is avoiding that is because he's never been a heartthrob. And I think it's that heartthrob thing. Um, but I don't think that Redford could do a Ratso Rizzo or he could do, I don't think he could do a Tootsie. And uh, if you want to compare the versatility, compare their foray into superhero movies. Um, you know, take Redford's Hail Hydra to Hoffman's Big Boy Did It from Dick Tracy. Not that anybody wants to watch Dick Tracy, but still very different, a little bit more um, bizarre of a, I mean, I, I will say this about Dick Tracy. It looked beautiful. Um, and so I, I think, you know, Redford's a little bit more of a versatile actor and we were watching this a couple of years ago. It just was on TV. And this is one of those movies when it's on TV, I'm going to watch it at least until Ben Bradley says, run that baby. I want to see that scene. I love that scene. So we're watching it. And Chris said, do these actors actually look like these guys? And I said, yeah, Woodward wishes. <laughs> because what they did with Hoffman's hair, I mean, he really does kind of look like Bernstein at the time. But um, yeah, Woodward wishes. We're all just going to say that. So I think it would have been difficult to pick one. Um, if I picked one over the other, I'd probably pick Hoffman, but that's more because I think he's a more versatile actor. So I'm kind of glad neither one of them got the nomination because then that would have been like, okay, it's going to be one of these guys. Who the hell knows? You know, and, and, and Peter Finch is just such a, such an off the rails, insane character in network that I think it, it works for him. Um, again, because of this movie not being particular, it, this is a movie that is portraying 1972 industries essentially that are not particularly female friendly at the time you know you have you you have uh newspapers in the in the u.s government very very misogynist very male centric so you don't have a lot of female characters in this and your main one of course is jane alexander and she does get the nomination 
and I love her in this, but Beatrice Strait in Network, I still think, takes it. She's She does such a fantastic job, um, but I definitely think after Beatrice Strait, it would have been Jane Alexander. I've already said that I think Robards... I love that Ned Beatty is in this movie and Network, but he gets nominated for Network. Um, Jason Robards is fantastic. I love that he has the Oscar for this, but damn it, Olivier is fantastic in Marathon Man. Another Goldman, by the way. Another another uh, Goldman uh, screenplay and novel. Um, not No, not novel, but a screenplay from a novel. Um, so yeah, and, and I... After watching Rocky again, I'm like, I love Burgess Meredith, but Mickey's a little, little over the top. And um, Polly can suck it because Burt Young is also nominated um, uh, for all those times that he called uh, Adrian a loser. He can just suck it. Um, these are all wonderful actors, though. And I, I adore Jason Robards, but, you know, I, I still think I would have probably had to give this to Olivier because it, it's one of those. We had a lot of like classic you know classic film actors do forays into sort of horror movies in the 70s and this is one of the best ones and he's so terrifying in this um but robards again like i said he's he's what he's what made me know who ben bradley is and respect him as a person um again we have best screenplay of course it should have won that um there's if you haven't seen voyage of the damned absolutely see it it is a tragic, heart-wrenching story. And Cousin Janet's in it, so you've got that going for you. Um, but it is heartbreaking. It is so hard to watch because, again, it's one of those that's very tense and you know how it ends, and it ends very, very badly. Um, but I think as a screenplay goes, I still think this one's a lot better. Um, because, I'm, you know, just sort of comparing, like, what we, you know, what we know is you know, movies where we know the ending, not just because we read the book, but because of history. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's really a wonderful picture, but I still think this one for screenplay does, does a little bit better. Um, as we talked about, this wasn't up for score because there's not much of a score here. It's a very sort of atmospheric ambient score. Um, and, you know, of course I'm, I'm giving this to, you know, Jerry Goldsmith. You know, the, the Omen is so incredibly iconic. Um, it does best sound. Um, sure, it gets best sound. And I think a lot of that is, there is a tenseness that gets added to this constant typewriter noise and this constant back and forth. And you have to be able to hear everybody on the phone. I mean, there's a lot of scenes where it's one guy talking into a phone and you have to be able to hear the person on the phone. And this movie does that for you. It It, it does do that for you. Um, but then there's King Kong, you know, and there's just, I, you know, I would, I would love for Dino's King Kong to get some sort of recognition, <laughs> but I do think this, you know, when you think about sound editing and best sound, you're like, okay, sure, I guess. But then you think about how much telephone stuff has to be done in this. And I think that's why it gets nominated because it's, you know, you really have to be able to hear it. And oh my God, I'm looking at I'm looking at this. How many Ned Beatty movies do that are great came out this year? Because another thing that was up for best sound was Silver Streak. And that's another one where you have to feel like you're on a train, but not be overpowered by train sounds. And it does a it does a great job of of doing that as well. Um and like I said, it's up for art direction. Um and you know, I, I get that, but I probably would have maybe gone for you know, Logan's run for both art direction and cinematography. Um, Logan's run is such a beautiful looking movie. Um, 
and editing rocky gets editing network's up for it too so is bound so is bound for glory and you know if you if you like woody guthrie go for it um and uh two minute warning is is up for it also but you know it's like eh, eh, charlton heston it's like whatever um it's fine i mean it's fine but i just don't care um rocky and all the president's men have a lot of back and forth that you have to do you know rocky with the fight scenes um and all the president's men with the typewriter guys typewriter guys you know phone uh courtroom you know back real back and forth to keep it paced well i think it definitely got it deserved its nomination but i think both of them were were definitely worthy of it because like i said when you're doing these these fight scenes and in rocky we talked about this when we talked about Rocky. The, the amazing thing about Rocky is, is this is a story about an underdog who goes to the big fight and loses the big fight. And I think that's one of the, the best things about it is that you're still rooting for this guy. He didn't win, but he went the distance. And if you're going to go like 15 rounds of boxing and not have it actually be boxing, you've got to keep your audience. And I think they did a good job. Like I said, I just rewatched it again. And I think it does a really good job of keeping you when you're like tense and like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, it, it does a good job of doing that. So I think they were both worthy, but either one of them could have, could have gone away with it. So I think, I think it, it, it won what it should have, but it could have taken more, but I'm not upset that it didn't. Oh no, that, that, and that's and that's totally fair. And um, and I actually also kind of went to rewatch Rocky in memory, of course, of of Carl Weathers. And of course, I also watched Predator as well because Carl was fantastic in Predator as well. So it gave me the, the, the double excuse: one, to rewatch Predator just because I love the franchise, and two, of course, to uh, to kind of honor, if you will, uh, Mr. Carl Weathers, of course. And uh, Rachel, do you think that this film should have won more, won more Oscars, or rather, in the categories it was nominated at least? Um. Yeah, I, I I think for what it did win, um, you know, I think it's uh pretty on 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 point. Um, you know, again, this was uh, shot not long after the actual events took place. Uh, so making it look appropriate for the time period is not the biggest thing, but recreating the offices of the post uh was they did that painstakingly accurate to the point of making sure like the phone books were for the correct year uh so um yeah so things like that all this attention to detail is is what she uh, wins uh films you know things like art direction so um sound absolutely because again there's not a lot of score of this so it's everything else is what the people hear and like I said, like the sound of the typewriter almost becomes the score in itself. Uh, so I think that's, um, you know, to, you know, they easily could have gone, you know, with like really dramatic score to really play at the paranoia and the mystery and stuff. But no, they just, uh, they let the actual sound, you know, of things like Robert Redford's footsteps echoing in this parking garage because it's empty and if he hears anything else and that indicates that in theory he's not alone so um you know that's um uh the the sound plays a a lot into that um you know obviously adapted screenplay 
makes sense. Uh, so, and, and, you know, Zan's exactly right. It's like, how do you uh, choose between Hoffman and and Redford for, for best actors? So it's like, even if you had nominated both of them, they probably would cancel each other out. Um, so um, that uh, it's an unfortunate when you have, uh, you know, two really strong actors like that. And they're definitely... Uh, and they made sure that this was the case that they got equal billing. So, you know, they or tried the best they could to, to give them equal billing. So in the movie posters, their names appear in one order. And then on the film itself, it appears in the other order. Uh, so they, they tried to do what they could to, to make sure that the, that our, our two leads are lead and not one is supporting the other. Um, so, um, uh, but as I said, when we reviewed Rocky, uh, I would have preferred this would have won for Best Picture over over Rocky. So, I mean, I understand why people love Rocky so much. And yes, you know, R.A.P. Carl Weathers. Um, you know, I'm glad that they were able to um, uh, adapt the ads <laughs> for the Super Bowl uh, with the, the, the kick, the kick of destiny. Uh, with Gronk, um, so that when they uh, he was he was in the ads going up to it, you know, Gronk's headed to Vegas. He's gonna get a second chance to kick a field goal and win people lots of money. And Carl Weathers, you know, again being like the Carl Weathers character, like I'll help you out, dude. Um, being that guy, supporting athlete. Uh, in this case, um, and then what they had the the post kicking destiny. Ad and you know they put up the thing for for Carl in it, so I was like, oh, that's sweet. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Rocky's not my cup of tea. I mean, sports movies in general aren't necessarily my my cup of tea to begin with. Um, and uh, you know, I just I think movies, uh, so at least some of the movies that we review that are based on actual events, um. I tend, I think, tend to be more significant, um, and this is definitely one of those. Um, if for anything, I, this this is this is one of those where it's like I I want to pull a clockwork orange. I want to strap people to a chair and pry their eyes open and leave them open and force them to watch this as many times as it takes for to, to get the point across. <laughs> so, um, you know. People can be like, oh, Nixon, that was so long ago, and, you know, whatever. But it's like, no, the reason that Nixon even thought that he could get away with what he did, unfortunately, is something that is still prevalent in American government. Um, and not, I'm not just saying that, you know, just for the Republican, just there's so much corruption and so much, there are just so many cooks in the kitchen and the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing and so many people in dark alleyways and you know literally and figuratively greasing palms and making promises and then either backtracking or you know flat out lying gaslighting like all of it just is still exists so much uh in in politics and it needs uh, yeah, at this point, I don't know if it could be taken. I don't 
think it could be taken down. Maybe we just need to have like a nuclear option and just start over fresh at this point. Like just cut out the whole thing, the system as it exists, and we're just going to start over. You know, we're just going to write a whole, you know, we're just going to write down a whole new set of rules. Um, <laughs> uh, and nobody under the age of seven, or nobody over the age of 70 gets an opinion. Uh, anybody over retirement age doesn't get an opinion. Um, or at least they give their opinion, but it's not going to hold a lot of weight. <laughs> I'm not going to get a say in the matter. Um, and I also think it still says a lot about uh, our relationship with the news and the and the press and um, how important a, a free press is and allowing the press to, you know, do what it needs to do to get the correct factual, that word, factual information and be able to put the facts out there for people to consume and if people get upset by the facts, I'm sorry. Facts don't care about your feelings. You know, if, if, yeah, there's a, there's a reason that the op-ed section is as small as it is. <laughs> it is not the entire paper. So you want to voice your opinion? Go on ahead. Again, you've got the right. You know, there's a free speech. But just remember, it's freedom of speech. It's not freedom against consequences. <laughs> so uh, we need... A free press to be able to tell us the information that we need to know and those that are not you know that that seem to live and die by their opinion by anything else just need to get over it <laughs> get over it take the facts and you know i'm sorry <laughs> you know if you don't like it i'm sorry Facts don't care about your feelings. That that the TLDR is facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> what once again, very very well put indeed, Rachel, and uh, that that is very true. Yes, you know the truth can hurt sometimes, and that's that's how it is. I mean, I guess yeah, because obviously I mentioned we talked about this when we when we reviewed Rocky. When it comes to the other categories, part of me would have given uh, Pakula best director over Abelson. I mean, Rocky, I enjoy Rocky, but just from a purely directorial perspective, it seems like Miss Pakula did more, if you will, compared to what Abelson did. As as good as a, as a film that as Rocky is, so maybe. That that part that's that pendulum could have swung more towards um all the president's men as far as I'm concerned. Best supporting actress, yeah, I I agree with Zan. There is you know you have to give it to Beatrice Strait. She is phenomenal in Network, and and like I really as much as I, Jane Alexander did a good job in this film, it, it, you know she, she had very limited screen time, and also I think wasn't given as much to do as she possibly could have could have been given, if you will. Maybe I mean she has a pivotal role in this, but I think. Maybe if you if you'd stretched out the you know her time on the film, maybe more so. But what we did see of her, I, I de definitely enjoyed. But yeah, Be Beatrice Strait is just just such a phenomenal, just does a phenomenal performance with Network. Um, other than that, I think you know I was happy to that won everything it did. Uh, you know, especially Jason Robards for sure. But yeah, the the the, the two one the two where, which was nominated for yeah one I would have given to um, two of the presidents men for sure as I mentioned best direction. And uh, whereas, you know, best actress, I think, uh, I think Beatrice can keep can keep her Oscar for sure when it comes to this. As as I mentioned before, as much as Jane Alexander is a great actress in her own right. So, getting then to ratings, Rachel, what do you give this movie out of ten? Oh, like I said, I love this movie. 
this is so in my wheelhouse uh you know this and spotlight and good night and good luck so um you know it's absolutely fantastic and uh you know uh just it's just done so well um so um i'm giving this an eight and a half so because it is it's so good <laughs> I'm so pleased that you that you enjoyed it so much. Uh, Zan, what do you give this one? This one, um, well, this one gets a 9 out of 10 for me. I mean, there's really nothing bad you can say about it. It's really wonderful. And it there's so much more to this story, but it leaves out what it needs to leave out. And it leaves in what it needs to leave in to, to make it interesting, thought-provoking, riveting, and entertaining. It's really fantastic. I'm actually with Zan on this one. I'm also going to give this a nine out of 10. And I thoroughly enjoyed, as I mentioned before, I don't, I guess maybe I was watching too many movies when it came to, uh, when we reviewed Rockies and I was watching them almost one after another. So, so as we mentioned before, I didn't get the chance to really sit with this film. Now that I did, I finally realized, you know, the greatness of this film. So, so yep, I'm definitely giving this a nine out of 10 for sure. So uh, let's get to um, Gold Standard Fan Mail. We actually have two pieces of feedback from our wonderful listeners this week, starting, I think, this time with uh, Frank Mendoza. So, uh, Zan, what does Frank Mendoza? Have to say this week? <laughs> you have like to say he... it like that. Mendoza, had, exactly. It's like saying the secret word on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh -huh, you you got to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I love that we've referenced The Simpsons a lot in this, and we are just now getting to Frank. That's fantastic. Um, so Frank tells us, I first saw all the president's men from start to finish for the first time in the summer of 2004. It was an election year, and the theater at the Boston Commons Common played five films, Monday through Friday, around the time of the DNC, which was in Boston that year. I remember 1999's Election, 1993's Dave, 1972's The Candidate, and this one, but I'll be damned if I can remember the fifth. So if anybody was in Boston during that election and went to these movies and they can remember the fifth movie, um, please let us know so we can let Frank know so he's not up all night like, what the hell was that movie? Um, anyway, I never thought of Redford as the strongest actor, but Hoffman is a genius. Who else can be Benjamin Braddock, Lenny Bruce, Ratso Brizzo, Dorothy Michaels, Bernie Fokker, and Carl Bernstein in the same career? The film itself is tough to critique. It lays out everything that it could, airing the dirty laundry of Nixon's presidency and of politics in general. We never really get to know the two leads as characters. It's more of a case of them serving the story rather than the other way around. No Hollywood glamour, no big melodrama, but that's all but all of that is to the film's credit. Frank and I always seem to agree quite quite acutely. It could have been so easy to add a little spice to the mustard of a story like this, but they wisely chose to let the story's merits speak for themselves. It may not be the most emotional film ever made. I'd go so far as to say it's almost aloof, but with the complexity of the real-life situation depicted, they couldn't cram years of investigation into a two-hour film. If streaming miniseries were a thing, then this might have gone in that direction instead of theatrical feature. Yeah, excellent point, because this would have been a lot of research. This would have been something like uh, Chernobyl, like the Chernobyl miniseries, I think, where we all kind of know what happened, but we don't particularly know who um you know a lot of the details because a lot of it was very um shrouded in uh in secrecy so um yeah i agree with him on that one 
I, maybe someday we'll get a we'll get a a, a streaming or, or you know a, a I guess episodic version of the whole thing. But I guess maybe this movie's perfect enough to uh, we don't really need another one necessarily. But it was great and and fantastic feedback from Frank. You know, uh, always, always love hearing from Frank. And I will also add, folks, please check out his wonderful podcast, Silver Screeners. I always enjoy listening to it. He brings great insights, and heck, it always brings me luck when I when I play my casual games. So there is that too. So uh, so thank you very much for writing in to us, Frank. And also, we have some feedback this week from Shalane and Rachel. What does Shalane have to say for herself? She says, "Hello, friends, and congrats on getting all caught up. Can't believe you guys are already caught up. Here are my favorite films of 2022." Doctor Strange 2, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Turning Red, Fantastic Beast 3, Thor, Love and Thunder, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Lightyear, which is a guilty pleasure, Strange World, another guilty pleasure, and Jurassic World Dominion. So when I heard this film, it's about the multiverse and the MCU is doing the multiverse saga. Weird. I also think the movie that should have been nominated for Best Picture is I Want to Dance with Somebody since Elvis got nominated. Anyway, this film probably deserves an Oscar, as did Jamie Lee. I cried when I watched her acceptance speech, and I cried when Harrison Ford hugged Short Round. <laughs> we need a Short Round series since he stole the show in Temple of Doom. <laughs> also, Brandon Fraser certainly deserves his Oscar, though I wish he had been nominated for The Mummy. Fun fact, I read that The Whale is based on a stage play. I did not know that. The only movies I've seen Michelle Yeoh in are Crazy Rich Asians, Shang-Chi, The Mummy 3, Kung Fu Panda 2, and her cameo Guards of the Galaxy Volume 2. I can't wait to see her in A Haunting in Venice right after I finish watching the first two Hercules Poirot films. Those are so good. She will be the upcoming Wicked movie and the upcoming Avatar films. It was funny that Top Gun Maverick got nominated for Best Picture and that it dominated the box office. Now Barbie's nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. That's what it dominated the box office. Avatar and Black Panther are kind of like Lord of the Rings, as in both first two movies got nominated for Best Picture, and The Return of the King won Best Picture. So maybe one of the sequels of Avatar, Black Panther could get Oscars in the future. Well, I don't care about Avatar, but Black Panther, I'd be all for it. But I think Avatar is more like Lord of the Rings when it comes to the Oscars. Yeah, that's true. Big, splashy, and beautiful. The only movies I've seen Jamie Lee Curtis in are My Girl... Freaky Friday, Christmas with the Cranks, you again, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, Haunted Mansion, Screen Queens, TV show. I still need to see Knives Out. Yes, you do. It's so good. Question. Have you guys thought about talking about any films that are A24 since you're caught up? Which technically we have already discussed some A24 films. Also, yes. <laughs> yes. But beyond the ones we already have, possibly... Yeah, you never know, and of course, uh, yeah. go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, because we yeah because we've done everything everywhere all at once and Moonlight. Uh, so um, yeah, I don't know if we want to do <laughs> Hereditary. I don't necessarily. We totally want to hereditary. do Hereditary. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to see Hereditary. <laughs> so <laughs> you never seen it? No. Oh, it's so good. No, no, I does. It's not necessarily ones I one I want to watch. Thank you very much. It's tough. It's a tough one, but it's really good. Yeah. So a lot of their movies are ones that I don't necessarily want to watch. So gotcha. But yeah, I who mean, knows? Who knows what we'll do? So 
And of course, Shalane, you know, you being one of our patrons, you can, of course, choose a, an A24 movie for us to review. So just putting that out mm -hmm. there. But more about that uh, here shortly. So, of course, you know, a big thank you to, uh, of course, Frank and to Shalane for their feedback. We really appreciate it. It's always was great getting uh, getting your insights and what mm -hmm. you have to say for sure. Um, and it, I will also add, go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say, if I had to, if I had to uh, say, you know, like put one out there to potentially do um the disaster artist <laughs> just because i want to make it fun of the room and tommy was that is an excellent <laughs> excellent movie though <laughs> so hey you never know we might we might end up doing that one but i will also add that in this year of course we've got another a24 movie or movies should i say nominated for best picture which is also the zone of interest which mm -hmm. i know I have read that people have found it gut wrenching and and you know very very hard to watch. Speaking of A twenty four taking on particular subjects and the zone of interest, I still have to watch it. But from what I've read from people from friends of mine who've watched it and also knowing what the subject matter is, I'm like, is mm -hmm. this going to be Schindler's List all over again? You know, some kind of not, not really looking forward to it. But you know, we'll, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But um, but yeah, I guess I guess we'll see, you know. But so of course, uh, as I mentioned before, big thank you to Frank to Frank and Shalane. And of course, if you other guys and listeners out there want to join the cool kids that are of course Shalane and Frank and give us your thoughts on the movies we discuss here or anything else, have questions for us, you can shoot us an email, and that's goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Once again, goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. You can follow us on, on X, formerly known as Twitter, where you can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard the Oscars Podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we appreciate the follow and the support. And also, as I mentioned before, if you would like to hear us discuss either your favorite Oscar nominee or a film that you feel deserved to be part of the conversation, just a film that you love so much, you know, like an A24 movie, you can join our wonderful family of patrons on Patreon and check out the great movies we've already done there. And of course, you all get to hear us hear our reviews of such movies as The Greatest Showman or Notorious or the OG Star Wars trilogy or a couple of Indiana Jones movies. Not the one with Short Round in, um, you know, unfortunately, but, but the other two we did do um, of, the, of the classic trilogy. And so, of course, uh, to join our Golden Army, head on over to patreon.com slash goldstandardoscars. And a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support. And last but certainly not least, if you're listening to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review us as that keeps the algorithm stimulated and allows our little podcast to reach even more ears like yours. And I will say big thank you to our Turkish listeners for allowing us to break the top 10 movie reviews podcasts in Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much, uh, people in Turkey. We really appreciate it. And you also bring, you also breed great football players. So I'm also very thankful to you, you guys for that. So I guess then getting to, um, to shameless self-promotion here, uh, Rachel, when you're not here in the gold standard theater, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Um, well, well, first of all, actually, uh, Nick talking about this year's uh, nominees actually past lives is an A24 movie as well, um, which is also nominated for best picture. Um, so, uh, but uh, you can find me with the uh, five ish fangirls podcast or a weekly pop culture and entertainment movie where we talk about all sorts of geeky and nerdy topics from the family perspective because fangirls are real fans too and we can be found pretty much wherever you find podcasts and at the 
fiveishfangirls.com where you can connect with all our various social media accounts and all of our personal ones as well, along with information about our nonprofit Fangirls Give Back, which uh, we are currently holding a fundraiser for for my upcoming birthday. So if you're on Facebook, uh, you might uh, see, uh, especially if you're friends with me on Facebook, you've seen that post. Uh, but you can also donate directly via PayPal on the website. Link is at the bottom of every single page. Um, and we can certainly appreciate all your support, financial and otherwise, but we could definitely use some financial help at the moment because things like the website and all that, uh, I have been self-funding uh, in between fundraising opportunities, which are far and few between. And since I'm currently unemployed, self-funding is a little difficult. So <laughs> in lieu of birthday presents, we would gladly take donations, please and thank you. Well, yeah, if, if they can definitely help folks uh, keep the, the lights on, as they say, I'm sure you'd be, you know, you'd be very appreciated for sure. So uh, so uh, I, I, I totally endorse that, Rachel. And uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely hoping, of course. And, and uh, Senorita Sprouse, where can folks find you? Well, you can find me and our friend Charles Skeggs on Drunk Cinema, the podcast where we watch our favorite movies while enjoying our favorite adult beverages and discuss them and record that conversation for posterity and your entertainment. Uh, we just finished up um, 1983's bootleg Bond classic, Never Say Never Again. And as we just passed Valentine's Day this week, we will be uh, discussing that that wonderful starstruck storybook love story that is David Lynch's Wild at Heart. <laughs> Um, and if you want to find me on social media, your best bets would be Instagram or TikTok, where my handle is Udenax19. Fabulous, fabulous stuff. Looking forward to, to hearing that review indeed. And uh, when it comes to me, folks, you can find me hosting the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play the very best and nothing but the best of country music for you guys, from Alabama to Zach Brown. For more information about that, you can visit our website, which is whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if you're fans of those superhero movies, myself and Keith Bliss can be found on Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss any and every, and also tangential, superhero movie under the sun. Coming up, we will be reviewing Justice League War, one of the animated DC movies, and uh, and then, of course, more other great fun films to come after that. Uh, at some point, we'll probably go see Madam Web, but we're kind of debating where to go to the theaters to that or wait till it gets released on streaming, seeing the horrible reviews it's getting. But we shall see. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, myself and the aforementioned Charles Gags can be found on the Fandom Zone. We're currently on hiatus as we did uh, finish up reviewing Echo, the latest MCU TV show. We'll be coming back once we get some hard dates from the other uh, superhero TV shows that should be coming out this year. So between Superman and Lois and a couple of other Marvel properties. So uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of stuff to discuss, but for now, we're kind of on hiatus. And speakings to come on this show, next time we will be discussing another William Golden written, Goldman written movie, but this time directed by Rob Reiner. And that film answers to the name of The Princess Bride. So Inconceivable! <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's it, 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 it's it's a classic. So uh, yes. um, yeah, Rachel, Rachel and Zan, anything else you, the two of you would like to add on either our next movie or anything else before we sign off? Do I need to watch The Princess Bride again? 
No. Am I going to? Absolutely. Is this a kissing movie? <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll definitely see if it is a kissing movie or not. But uh, it's gonna it's gonna bring back a lot of childhood memories for me. So I'm I'm probably gonna get a little bit tearful when I watch this one. But uh, looking forward to discussing it with you both. So uh, that said, folks, thanks as always for this show and supporting us. We will see you next time with The Princess Bride. Until then, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. Enjoy those movies. Keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people. <laughs>